You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. your house seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. If you're wondering where we've been for the last two shows, I want you all to realize there's nothing wrong with your feet. Yes. Allie and I had a friend who had a terminal esophagus cancer back in Knoxville, and we went back to see him, and it, unfortunately, he did lose that battle. And the funeral wasn't until just last Saturday, and we didn't do the show or the week before because we thought the duties of being there for him and such were far more important at the time. So if you're listening and saying, hey, where are the other shows? We're going to try and record them again, get back in touch with the people who we had scheduled to be here. So that's just the way it goes. And if you're interested, our friend was Steve Johnson in... I've held a blog post on my blog, a tribute to Steve, and anyone interested in uh, supporting the family, what they've asked is, instead give donations in their name to the Disabled Veterans of America. But today, we're talking about an important question, where I think we talk about that every Saturday, this is the one I think we've covered yet, Christ and culture. I remember having to read, I think it was Reinhard Niebuhr, Niebuhr's book back when I was in college. It might be Richard Niebuhr. I don't remember which one. But it's all about how do Christ and culture interact and how how are Christians supposed to interact? Some Christians would say, hey, do whatever you want, no problem. And others would say, be in the world but not of the world. We, we don't want to have any association with any of the deeds of darkness and such. And yeah, I know I'm quoting the Bible, but are we really understanding it right? To discuss these, I had someone come on who said she wanted to discuss cultural apologetics, and she's been on the show before, great guest of ours, from the excellent educational facility of Houston Baptist University, and that's a Dr. Hardy Ordway. She's a professor of English and faculty in the MA in Apologetics at HBU. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is the author of Not God's Type, An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms. Her work focuses on imaginative apologetics on the writings of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and Charles Williams. And she is the Charles Williams subject editor for the Journal of Inkling Studies. Her current book project is Tolkien's Modern Sources, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. Now, when she was here last time, she was talking about literary apologetics. If you want to go back and look at the archives, but she's back now to talk about cultural apologetics. Dr. Ordway, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Well, it's great to be here, Nick. Thanks so much for having me on again. Mm-hmm. Now, if my audience doesn't remember who you are, could you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Absolutely. Um, and I always think that my doing what I'm doing now as an apologist is a sign that, uh, first of all, God has a sense of humor, mm-hmm. and you can never um, you can never give up on anybody because mm-hmm. I um, 
as my by my memoir, Not God's Type, um, talks about, I actually started off, um, you know, more or less as an agnostic as a child, became an atheist as uh, as a young adult, um, and by the time I was um, 30, I was a full-fledged, serious atheism is the way to go kind of person, um, and it was it was at that time that, well. I had a bit of a turnaround and um, became a Christian. That was in 2006, um, and uh, that was something I certainly never saw coming. Um, and as I, you know, wrote about it, and as I spoke more about what I was, um, what I had experienced, and as I taught more, um, became active in apologetics, I began to realize that really, although the arguments had convinced me on things like the historical argument, the, um, you know, certain philosophical arguments for the existence of God. The, what had brought me to the table in the first place, what had even got me to the point of being willing to ask questions and listen to the answers, was actually literature, uh, was mm. actually God's grace working through my imagination. And having realized that, it really opened the door for more effective apologetics mm. ministry for me, um, for growth for me as a Christian, um, and really it's it's the reason that I've ended up where I am now, which is um, having come to Houston Baptist University four years ago, actually. I'm starting my fifth year at HBU uh, this fall, and it's just been a wonderful adventure, and we started the uh, cultural politics program from scratch. Um, I was largely responsible for building it, and now we have it going absolutely full-fledged. I mean, as, as you know, Nick, um, mm-hmm fully online um, and I have students literally from all over the world yep. and and actually we have both a cultural track and a philosophical track so we, we really kind of expanded but as you know from having me on the show for this topic my heart is really in the cultural apologetics it's what I teach it's what I write about and I, I think it's really an absolutely vital place for us as Christians to be engaging yeah no Something also that's interesting about HBU is that you're one of the main professors at HBU, and yet you're not a Baptist, are you? No, and actually that's one of the other things of God has a sense of humor, because um, I am a Catholic mm-hmm. uh, living in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. teaching at a Baptist university in Texas. <laughs> um so actually, one of the wonderful things about HBU is that it has a, has a Baptist heritage, and it's very proud of that heritage, and, and rightfully so, but it's a an ecumenical school, conservative, mm-hmm. orthodox, um, but really what we would call mere Christian, to use C.S. Lewis's phrase. So I have, across the university, actually, not just in the School of Christian Thought, but across the mm-hmm. university, I have Catholic, orthodox um, colleagues um, Anglicans, um, evangelicals from a wide range of denominations. And, you know, within the apologetics departments, um, my colleague Michael Ward is also a Catholic. Um, and then we have a range of, um, you know, Mary Jo Sharp is a uh, Southern Baptist. Um, we have a range of other evangelicals in our department. And I think this is a really great environment for an apologetics program mm-hmm. because we share our deep convictions uh, about the Lord, about the gospel, um, about the the reality, like this is actually true. Uh, pretty much, the Apostles' Creed is is the is the center point. This is all what we agree on. There are definitely things that we disagree on, and these things are important. But we don't have to agree on everything yeah. to do this work. And I find that being in an environment where I have colleagues whose differences I respect, 
and I have students um, whose differences I respect, and teaching the students how to graciously interact with each other and modeling that for them is a wonderful experience um, because it's really helpful for my Protestant yep. students yep. to encounter Catholics who are serious about their faith. And Catholic students to encounter Protestants who, you know, are curious and respectful and to be able to dialogue um, and and do so, you know, in, a, in a, an attitude of, okay, uh, you may not convince me, but I want to know what you believe, not just mm -hmm. I sort of vaguely assume that you might believe. Yeah. And uh, I think you also probably know from <clears throat> my father-in-law, Mike Lacona, who's a professor down there as well, that, and you know from your own experience that, not all the students that come in are Christians as well. Well, at HBU, broadly speaking, um, our students in the apologetics program um, fairly obviously are all Christians. Yeah. Uh, but in the undergraduate, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point because we actually have a among the Christians a, a quite a diversity of denominations, but we also have a substantial percentage of students who are Muslim, who are Buddhist, or who identify as you know atheist or nuns. So the undergraduate teaching is is really a mission field um, in that they know they're coming to a Christian university and they want that solid moral aspect. They want that commitment to, you know, care. Um, we would call it pastoral care, but they just know that they're going to get, you know, cared for. And we have the opportunity as Christians, as Christian professors, to say, okay, maybe you've never met somebody before in your entire life who is both an intellectual who is at the top of their field and really believes this stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's a tremendous, tremendous witness just, just in itself, apart from any conversations that we might mm -hmm. have with students. Yeah. Now let's start talk, talk about Christ and culture. And there's one question I think should be obvious about the start, but it's one we normally skip over, unfortunately, and that is, what is culture? I am so glad you asked that question, Nick. That really is the starting point. Mm -hmm. Because culture, rightly understood, is simply the way we live. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's, that's just, it's, it's as simple as that. So in that sense, in, in, a, in a very sort of basic way, we don't have a Christian culture or a secular culture. Um, we can't live in bubbles because we all are part of the way that we're living. Um, I mean, for instance, if you're an American um, and you know, if you're listening to this show, then you share in a broader culture in which English is the dominant language. Um, not the only language, obviously, um, but if you're listening to the show, it's the language that you at least know. Um, you live in um, a culture that is shaped by certain patterns of urban and rural and suburban living, mm -hmm. the way we interact with each other. So these are all cultural things. Uh, so at a very deep level, we have to think, okay, culture is the way we live, what we consider to be just normal patterns of behavior. Mm -hmm. What I think usually gets thought of as culture when we start having this discussion about Christ and culture are two, two other aspects of culture. One of those is artistic productions and culture, things like film, television, books, mm -hmm music, uh, things like that, mm -hmm. and um, things like, and the ways in which the culture, um, the ways in which people not of faith and, you know, fallen away Christians or sort of oblivious sorts of Christians are living in ways that are, are 
wrong or even just simply unhealthy. Um, so things like the uh, ubiquity of pornography um, mm. in modern culture. Yeah. Terrible that this is part of our culture, but unfortunately it is part of our culture. It's a terrible part, which we should try to eradicate if we can. Um, right. So, so there are some ways then that we can say as Christians, how, how do we engage with culture? Well, we can't just say I'm not going to engage with culture because you can't not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can mm-hmm. say, okay, I'm going to choose to not engage in certain aspects of culture that are obviously sinful, like looking at pornography. Um, and it's, this is something I emphasize because it's so pervasive that many, many Christians struggle with it. And so I want to encourage anyone who is struggling with that to, you know, get, get help and, and try to break out of that. It's, mm-hmm. just, it's a, a serious problem in our culture. If I could say something at this point, if anyone's interested out there, my wife and I respectively run groups that are marriage support groups on Facebook. So if you're a Christian and you're either married or engaged or dating or hoping to date and marry someday, you can be invited to attend the group. My men's group is all men, no women whatsoever, and Ari's group is all women and no men whatsoever and I can safely say I think in our men's group this is a big issue that comes up many times I don't know if it comes up in a women's group because frankly that's how much we don't talk about it around our house and keep things secret but we have these groups to help people out and if you really want to get help I can connect you with several men especially who can help you with that and my wife can do likewise for women yeah this is this is great because this this actually is an aspect of what I would say engaging with the culture. Mm-hmm. Because you what you have is you've identified a problem in the culture that is affecting both Christians and non Christians mm-hmm. and 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 working to assist them. So that mm-hmm. is cultural engagement in the very best sense. Um in this case a kind of rescue and healing operation. Yeah. So that's one aspect of, of culture where we identify something that's obviously wrong, um, and say, Okay, this is this is we do something about it. But now if we turn our attention over to cultural expressions, it becomes a little bit more tricky because we can't just say, oh, you know, we're going to reject all forms of art. I mean, some people actually try to do that. But the problem with that is that this is really impossible because mm-hmm. Human beings are made in the image of their creator, who is himself the great artist who, who paints sunsets and birds and, and you know, and this is the beauty of the, of the universe. Uh, we're made to to enjoy beauty and to participate in and to create it. And if, you live in, if you live in a house, you're living in artwork. Exactly. Yeah. And it affects us and we're, we're drawn to it. And, you know, we, we have right there in Scripture, you know, in the, in, in the Holy Scriptures, we have poetry. We have the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, um, you know, you know uh, St. Paul exhorts us to sing hymns. Mm-hmm. So here's the music. Um, so we have right there in Scripture the obvious, um, you know, inclusion of the arts. I mean, so I think we have to say, okay, well, if the arts in the expression of ourselves in artistic ways and culture is good, how do we negotiate interacting with that in, in fruitful ways? Uh, and I think that ends up putting the question 
in a more useful way to say, okay, there are all these different ways that we can express ourselves. How can we do so and how can we interact with other people's expressions in a way that honors God, um, that is an exhibition of love for God and love for neighbor? Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I'm also thinking, usually I think when we think of culture, we think of, say, going and in, in visiting, say, the Middle Eastern culture or the Mexican culture or the Japanese culture and such. And I'm thinking there are also so many subcultures in the world. I mean, think about, well, so many TV series have a fandom, for instance, and you can go and you can say something there, and everyone in the fandom will automatically understand what you're talking about. People outside will have no clue whatsoever. When Ali and I lived in Knoxville, we used to go to a card shop every Saturday night after my show, and we'd play a collectible card game with the people there. And we all understood what we were talking about there. Someone else came in, they wouldn't have a clue whatsoever. And then, of course, if you go to a church, there is a Christian culture as well. And unfortunately, sometimes when we have new people come in, we speak in Christianese instead of the language they understand. Yeah, this is an excellent point because we really, I think, this is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because by nature, people like to be in, in groups um, and to have a sense of, of bonding and community. Mm-hmm. And I think, in a way, because the family has become so fragmented in our modern culture, um, many people are, are lacking, through no fault of their own, um, they're lacking a stable family, even a core family, let alone an extended family. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look back at, you know, at literature, at stories and, and history, you can see that up in, up until relatively recently, it was the norm to have big families, lots of aunts and uncles and grandparents and nephews, and so you had that that community. And now we're really lacking a lot of that. And so I think people are in part seeking out these these subgroups based on interests, whether it's card games or um, video games or literary groups or sports groups or mm-hmm. theater or whatever it might be. Um, all of these things are ways for people to come together and to form these bonds. And as you pointed out, Nick, they mm-hmm. they have their own language and their own their own internal group culture. Now, sometimes a lot of Christians get really weary about some things. They say, you know, I could watch that show or that movie or read that book or something like that, but um, I think there are people in there doing things that are sinful and such, and I don't want to be a part of that. Now, to an extent, I can understand that, of course, but then I think, yeah, but, you know, if you look at the Bible, there's a lot of people doing that kind of stuff in there, too. As well, I mean, we have this idea that if we're going to t- engage in something, enjoy it, it has to be 100% absolutely pure, or we shouldn't. I mean, do you think we're kind of overthinking it with that then? I yes and no, mm-hmm. um, because I think <laughs> I think we have people who are overthinking it and people mm-hmm. who are underthinking it, and not mm-hmm. a lot of people in the middle. Um, so let me first say it, it is there are people who who just don't give any thought to is this a good activity and they just jump into it um, mm-hmm. and you know that's just not a good idea uh, it's just mm-hmm. for anything really so it is possible not to think about things enough um, mm-hmm. but I, I think you're right that for the most part we really are overthinking it mm-hmm. and I think if we step back I think the problem 
comes with labeling X activity as, oh, that's sinful, and not saying, well, what's the behavior of the person that's, that's sinful? So, for example, um, you know, take, you know, for instance, the you know, card games. Um, it, a lot of them have sort of fantasy themes. I, I also used to play Magic Gathering. Um, so did I. All right. Well, there you go. I was thinking of that. So mm-hmm. I was really, really into Magic the Gathering for, for a while. Fun game. I'm here. Um, and it's interesting because that, if you look at that game, what mm-hmm. I think a lot of Christians will see as potentially sinful are the fact that they're, some of the characters in the cards are like demons and monsters and, and some of the spells that you can, you know, you know quote-unquote cast, i.e. play as a game you know, activity, you know, you can do spells. And they say, oh, you know, that's like magic, magic, that's the name of the game. Um, And I think that is sort of a category error. Mm -hmm. Because that's, the people who are playing the game, if they're sane, if they're Mm -hmm. mentally stable, and there are people who are not, but that's a different category. We have to leave mentally unstable people out of this because they have a different set of of difficulties. But if you take a normal, moderately well-balanced person, that person knows that he's not actually engaging in magic and spell. Mm, right. When he's playing Fireball or he's having like a creepy monster card that he's playing. Now, in contrast, there are things like Ouija boards that are actually meddling with the occult. And right. that's dangerous and people mm-hmm. should not do it, period. Mm-hmm. That's not a game in which you're you know, doing some you know, scoring points by this card that you're playing that has a Ouija board on it, you're actually trying, whether you are aware of it or not, to, you know, talk to the dead. This is mm. not a good idea. But then I, I wanted to to, um, um, to come back to that idea of, of what it is that we're identifying as sinful. Because one of the things that I noticed um, when I was playing Magic the Gathering uh, was that it's, and this is in retrospect because I, I finished playing um, with it before I was even a Christian, but as I look back, I think that the real temptation was not to occultism, but to greed. Right. It's a festival card game. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a real temptation to say, well, I should, I'll spend more money than I should, or I'm going to be envious of that guy because he's got a black lotus, you know? Um, so, oh, if only I had one right now. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? So yeah. here, I think we need to look at the environment and say, is this activity the kind of activity we're going to assume that it doesn't have any directly sinful things like looking at pornography or, or doing occult act- activity, um, directly doing it. So is this an activity that's conducive to virtue, hospitality, love of neighbor, um, patience, kindness, you know, all those sorts of fruits of the spirit, or does it, you know, or is it neutral, um, like um, many activities, or does it conduce to anger, greed, envy? Um, so, for instance, talk about cultural activities. Um, many women, um, and, I, and I will say it's probably some men, but certainly many women, treat shopping as a hobby. And, you know, in moderation, there's nothing wrong with you had a bad day, you decide, like, okay, well, this is the day I'm going to get a pair of new shoes. In moderation, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you start taking shopping as something that 
you know, by which you judge other people. Well, does that person have as nice shoes as I do, or well, more than I feel less, or 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 you know, envious? Even something as simple as that can become a sinful activity for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in context. Yeah. Now, just one interesting when I said I'd love to have a black lotus right now. The reason isn't because I still play the game, but because let me just put it this way. I just checked on Amazon right now, and I found you could buy one for $15,988. I, mean, I get one. I am selling it on eBay immediately. And, oh, you know, good heavens. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm also thinking that I remember, you know, I like what you said about sane people, because I remember years ago I played Dungeons & Dragons with my friends. Me too. And when we were done, we went out and got pizza or something like that. We didn't sit back and try to summon the Dark Lord Satan or something like that. And unfortunately, you have a, things like the polling report come out and say, our children are falling into the occult and such. And I don't know anyone who was falling into the occult that way. Yeah, and so here, I mean, that's the problem with looking at surface mm. rather yeah. than mm. substance. Um, I mean, take for instance, here, well, let's move to a literary example, the mm. Harry Potter books. Um, yes. And, you know, I think they're, they're not, you know, absolutely top-notch literature. They're well-written, but not amazing. Mm. I really enjoyed them. I've read the whole series twice. Um, and a lot of people are really freaked out about the fact that the characters are witches and wizards, and they cast self. Well, what's, you know, first of all, it's, it's a story. These are characters. In that world, they can do that. Um, I don't think there's anything in the stories themselves that even hints at encouraging people to think that they could do magic in the real world. Again, mm-hmm. this is a distinction that normal people are, are, are able to make. Right. And this is interesting. I want to point out before I make my, my actual um, uh, point um, that... Rowling is actually really clear in the books about distinguishing between um, uh, good and bad magic. Mm-hmm. The good magic is is the kind that all the, the, the characters we like do. It's the kind that's taught at Hogwarts. Um, and that kind of magic is actually more like just kind of fun kind of science, like botany. Um, you know, all the things that they're doing, you could, you know, do, you could be a science fiction kind of story. You could do with, with you know, gadgets. The things that um, are, are actually closer to actual occult activities um, are what Rowling in the stories calls the dark arts, and she makes it very clear that these things are evil and you shouldn't do them. Mm-hmm. So there's right there in the books, she's making the distinction for us. Right. But what I want to point out is if people are just looking at the surface, mm-hmm. they're going to miss what I think is one of the most important things about the Harry Potter series, which is how fundamentally pro-family it is. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, she's Christian. Um, I mean, I think she's somewhat liberal, um, which is not surprising. She's she's in England, and they're overall more liberal, um, you know, in the church, which is unfortunate. But she's still a Christian, and there's a real Christian sense about the families. Um, like the Weasleys are a wonderful, wonderful family, and by the end of the story, all of the main characters get married to people of the opposite sex, <laughs> and yeah. kids. It's amazingly affirming of the deep Christian understanding of marriage and family. And when and, Harry looks into the mirror that shows his deepest desire, it's his family. Yeah. 
I mean, this is this is really profound. This mm-hmm. is the kind of thing that shapes the imagination in a, in a positive way, um, and that that's the really important thing. Now, if Harry Potter had been the other way around and it was anti-family but didn't have any magic in it, well, it would be a very different story. But then it would actually, it would be very harmful, and yet it would probably pass beneath the radar of many Christians. I have to ask, because you said you read the books twice, I'm wondering how, how many, because when I was visiting my family, I've got a birthday coming up next month, so they said, what's something you'd like for your birthday? I said, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. They gave me an early gift. I've already read Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Now, and I loved it. Have you read it yet? I have not. I have not. So don't spoil it for me. I, I intend to, but I haven't yet. Well, what happens at the end of a book is... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I also think that uh, one of my, the best men at my wedding, one of the things that we have in common, for instance, is we love the Final Fantasy series, which has a lot of magic and such in it as well. And, something we also notice about the series because it comes from Japan is that usually whenever the church shows up and I mean it's not said be the Christian church or it's just said the church the church is always evil in this series it's run by these corrupt priests and, pre- and ministers and things of that sort and I look and think you know I kind of think Japan might be trying to tell us something about how they view us yeah um, and unfortunately, that see, that's actually where reading culture is so important. And this is mm-hmm. one thing that I that I teach in my my classes at HBU. Mm-hmm. That looking at something like that and saying, what are the unstated assumptions? Mm-hmm. Now, Japan is one of the the least um, Christian countries um, that I, that I know of. It's very it's a Christian population is present. There is a Christian population there, mm-hmm. but it's very very much a minority. Most of their weddings are Christian weddings, though. In fact. Um, so, so so looking at this um, you know looking at the at the culture we we can um, looking at looking at the kinds of things that get expressed um, Mm -hmm. in the culture in in things like shows and movies and things like that that can actually allow us to see what people really think about Mm -hmm. certain topics Um, Mm -hmm. in a way we can get if we just ask them maybe Mm mm-hmm and another aspect of this kind of thing that I'm, I've seen a lot is, you know, Christians do have a lot of paranoia about the demonic and such as well. And my wife and I, my wife really loves Pokemon, for instance. And I enjoy it as well. That's something that, in fact, drew her to me is that she'd been surrounded by these apologists all her life who were just these big nerdy types who didn't have these kinds of interests. And I come along and I have pretty much the same interests as her. I was like, huh, that's interesting. Now, if you know anything about this, the Pokemon Go app has come out and it's caught the world on by storm. And a lot of churches are actually stops in the game. You can stop and get items. But it, it's very sad to me that so many Christians are rejecting this and saying, we don't want anything to do with this. This is all demonic. This is all satanic. Over and over, and I think, guys, you got people coming right to your doors. Sure, they're playing a game, but they're coming to your doors. Why not do something with that? And this is just—it's—it's it's interesting because I would actually call this this reaction sort of the, the result of demonic activity. Um, I, I do I do take the, the demonic very seriously. Um, sure. Uh, yes, 
I take spiritual warfare very seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do, I firmly believe, and I've seen so much evidence that, you know, the devil is active and trying to mess with us and that mm-hmm. there are demonic forces at work. Mm-hmm. It's, the devil is clever. Um, and I think one of the greatest tricks that the enemy has done has been to distract Christians from where the real battle is going on. Mm-hmm. Because it's like Pokemon Go, like, okay, it's, it's a cute game. Um, it's fun. It can lead people to do some foolish things, like, you know, not look walking, looking where they're going while they're hunting for the monsters. Mm. But it's just a game, and mm. it has potential for goodness, potential for bad. And getting hung up on, okay, it has monsters, therefore it's demonic. No, what actually mm. demonic forces um, are operating, I would say, in things like racism, um, in things like working through our economic system for greed, <laughs> Um, and in, in individual people's lives. I mean, I see this. One of the things I tell my students every at the beginning of every year, especially my new students, I say, you are stepping out into the front lines. You should expect spiritual warfare, and it will come in the form of self-doubt, anxiety, unwillingness to ask for help, um, things like that. Because those are, the, those are the demonic voices that say, you're no good. You're worthless. You shouldn't even bother trying to do this. Don't ask the professor for help. Don't ask your classmates for help. Um, just you're just worthless. You can't do it. And and this this is actually demonic activity that needs to be confronted by prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen this again and again that my students when they realize this and like whoa, there's an active intelligent evil force that's trying to mess with me as I do my apologetic study. Well, yeah, of course, because the better we are as apologists, we're going to be going out there sharing the gospel more effectively. Of course the enemy doesn't want us to do that. Yeah. Of course it's going to mess with us. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be through Pokemon Go. It's going to be from that, that little voice that says, don't, don't bother to you know, participate in class because you aren't good enough. Go and, you know, Stevie yeah. instead. Yeah. I'm thinking with you as the C.S. Lewis expert as well, but... I think this comes from sort of his introduction to a screw tape letters where he says, Demons are just as happy with a magician as they are with a materialist. They are just as happy if you think they don't exist or if you think they exist behind every bush. Exactly. You know, the screw tape letters, it's, it, I mean, Lewis is just brilliant, um, absolutely brilliant. But the screw tape letters in, in particular just nails it mm. in terms of the way that the enemy messes with us. Hey. I think the devil is just delighted more when everyone is running around terrified that everything could inflict them with some demon or be, be become some sinful activity or something of that sort because it has us living in fear of it. Yeah, and meanwhile, in our churches and our communities, we might be still backbiting and gossiping and not lending a hand to help people um, and, and not even realize that this is, you know, this is actually where the a lot of the sin is going on. When I was in Bible college and it came time to do my senior sermon, I did a sermon on wonder in the world and how we need to return to a position of wonder. And someone pointed me before it to a, a, a Moody magazine issue and the cover story. And when I, when I tell you this, the title of the, the story on the cover, I'm sure you're going to be very, very sad. But the question asked was, is it right to enjoy my life? 
Oh, that's really sad that anyone would even ask, feel the need to ask that question, never mind what yeah. the answer would be. Oh, dear. Mm-hmm. And one reason I'm thinking about this is because when we talk about doing all these things that we do for fun, I mean, I remember Allie and I were listening to someone talking about the Pokemon game, for instance, and like, I'll grant you, a lot of people can spend way too much time doing games and such. But a lot of people aren't like that, and say, you know, all this time you all are out there spending all this, playing all these games and such, you could be out there doing some evangelism instead. Oh. And I think, you know, dude, I understand the importance of evangelism, but we're not machines. We can't do evangelism 24-7. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. that, and this is something that I see a lot, so I'm glad you brought this up, yeah. this sense of guilt. Mm-hmm. If I'm not out there... 24-7, if I'm not spending every waking moment doing mm-hmm. something explicitly evangelistic or explicitly devotional, then, then somehow I'm, I'm not living up to, you know, what yeah. God expects of me. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of, a couple of problems with this. Um, one of them is, well, first of all, your, your point that we're not machines. Right. You know, God didn't make us to, to, to be machines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he made us to be in relationship he made us to need food and sleep um, and we need recreation right in you know especially in a modern American culture it's it's a weirdly kind of polarized culture because on the one hand you have slacker culture and people who you know don't actually get you know don't actually get jobs until they're 30 and live in their parents basement etc but you also have I think the reason we have that is because the other extreme is workaholism um, and this idea that if you're not working, um, then you're somehow not doing what you should be doing. And this affects all, all aspects of life. And I, I certainly mm-hmm. feel pressure of that expectation as a college professor. Um, mm-hmm. and I think you see it all over the place, this, this pressure to always be working. But we're actually need, we need to have leisure. We need to, you know, the word recreation, recreate. Mm-hmm. We're kind of making ourselves anew and if we don't have the opportunity to recharge ourselves to refresh ourselves how are we going to be able to interact with other people in a loving way mm-hmm. how are we going to how are we frankly going to have time to really even understand who we are and to really mm-hmm. get to know God because it's really hard to be in a deep relationship with God when you give him, okay, okay, Lord, I'm going to give you 45 minutes on Sunday morning, but I'm really pressed for time the rest of the, day, rest of the week. You know, mm-hmm. I'll schedule in my 15 minutes of, of Bible study, but boom, that you know, 15 minutes is over, and I'm on to my next thing. Well, what about the afternoon that you're just kind of kicking back in your house and you're looking you know, around and you, you're suddenly moved by gratitude for your family and your friends, and you think, mm-hmm. Lord... Thank you. Um, uh, you you got to have leisure, and this is this is kind of not really optional. <laughs> yeah, uh, I couldn't help but think when I think about this kind of thing is that uh, years ago when Allie and I got married, and we got married on a Saturday, the very next morning we were heading out on our honeymoon, and you know I actually we actually did miss church that morning, and I think most of the church understood. That hey, they're going to the beach, they're on a honeymoon, let them have some fun together. And while we were there, I had made a statement to my parents and her parents before. I said, we are celebrating our marriage. We are going on our honeymoon. We want time to ourselves. Unless it's an absolute emergency, 
please do not contact us. <laughs> Let us be. And I've got a friend who's about to get married. He's just proposed. We're not sure when the wedding is going to be. But when, uh, I, when I talk to him, I'm probably going to tell him the same kind of thing. I've, not only that, but I'll say this as well. And it sounds shocking to some people, but I say, don't bring any books with you, because I know he's a big reader like I am, except your Bible. When it comes to your technology, don't be checking your email. Don't be checking Facebook. You do not need to spend this week doing ministry because, you know what, you are not the only person out there in the world doing it. There are other people who can. But for this week or two weeks, however long you spend on your honeymoon, you are starting a new life with that spouse of yours. And no one else can be a spouse to your spouse except you. So bring your Bible and read that together by all means, but don't be doing ministry work while you're there because you need to step this time. Now, of course, if someone came up to you while you were on your honeymoon and wanted to know about the gospel and such, it'd be foolish to say, so I'm on my honeymoon, not helping you. But, I mean, don't sit out and do it explicitly. Take some time and just enjoy what you've got together. And a lot of Christians might think that seems odd to say that, but... Don't you think that kind of falls by the line of how we should do things? I agree. And I would actually, I would go so far as to say that we, we need to bring more of that into our everyday, day-by-day, mm-hmm. day-by-week lives. Right. Because really, I think especially for those of us in ministry and apologetics, mm-hmm. there's, a real, there's a real temptation to pride to think that I am indispensable. Right. Now, I know that I have a valuable contribution to make. Um, mm-hmm. and. You know, I feel like I can say that in due humility because I, I didn't, you know, God gave me these gifts. It's my responsibility to use them. Um, but I'm not indispensable. The world will not end if right. I don't answer my emails, you know, this week. And I think we can get into this sort of cri- constant crisis mode. We think, well, I, I've got I've to do, I've got to check my emails all the time. I've, I've got to always be on. Well, no, this is, mm-hmm. again, this is, a, this is actually a temptation to sin. Mm-hmm. It's sin of, of pride um, and of dependence on self, not on God. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in the last um, year, year and a half, uh, actually more like two years, I've made a, a real effort devotionally to keep the Sabbath. Um, and so Sunday, um, I go to Mass um, and, you know, I'll email my friends maybe. If I have friends all over the world, so I email is the main way that I keep in touch with them. But I don't do work email. I mm-hmm. don't do work. Um, I even, insofar as is possible, don't do any housework. I do that on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a real day of rest where I get to right. read, I get to maybe watch a television program. And I'll tell you, when I first started doing this about two years ago, I actually found it difficult because yeah. I was so geared up to this busyness that I felt almost like like something's wrong. Like, okay, I need to be doing something. Um, and I realized I, I was just at a, at a strained level. And I thought, you know what? It's it's a commandment, you know, honor the Sabbath day. Like you know, God, God knows that this is for us that He does it. Um, yeah. So I thought, well, let's let's continue with it. And that has been really, really helpful for me, both devotionally and in terms of of my own my own just inner integration as a person, mm-hmm. because. That seventh day, you know, of the week that you know the start start of the week, really starting the week refreshed and realizing, okay, God first, and I, you know, I need to trust to Him. 
things can wait till Monday. Obviously, as you said, if an emergency comes up, that's one thing. But insofar as it's within my ability to have it as a genuine day of rest and bringing this back to um, cultural apologetics, mm-hmm. this is this is a cultural shift that we've had in the West, broadly speaking, where you know Sunday used to be a day when shops were closed. Um, when people, you know, they went to church, they came home, they did things with their family. Blue um, laws, right? Exactly. Now, mm. there are, you know, there's reasons why that changed, um, and the econ- economy has changed, and, you know, at, at this point, you don't want to be punitive and shut down stores, because a lot of people, like, if you if you work six days a week, um, if you work on Saturdays, when are you going to do your shopping? I and mean, we don't mm. want to penalize people um, <laughs> because they... They can't get out to the store any time but Sunday. Mm. Um, I think culturally speaking, one of the things that we could do that would be beneficial um, to evangelism is to help encourage the keeping of a day of rest. And even if we just argued for it on purely you know, secular grounds, it doesn't take away the fact that it's a divine commandment. We can make the case for it just because it's good for us. But insofar as if we can help people to have more space in their lives, have more have more time for reflection, we've actually got a much better chance of helping them think about things that are important. Because again, this is this is Satan's work. If we're busy, 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 busy all the time and we're exhausted and, you know, drop into exhausted sleep as soon as we, you know, stop drinking Red Bull, um, then we're not gonna think about why am I here? What is this for? Mm-hmm. Um and we need to help people to ask those questions mm. uh, and to realize even that they have these questions. Because that's one of the challenges of cultural apologetics, really. We've got all these things we want to tell people, but until they realize that they're actually important questions, why should they listen? Well, it seems to have worked for Chick-fil-A so far. Yeah, and I find that very encouraging. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a great model. Um, and they're just, they're just doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, good yeah. for them. You know, I've actually lived with the same practice for several, several years, well over a decade, that on Sunday I don't do direct apologetics work. Now, I can read apologetics books and such, but I don't answer questions. I don't do Facebook debates. I mean, I could be in the middle of a good Facebook debate on Saturday and say, hey, I'll be back Monday, and I'm not saying anything the whole time. The only time I've come on Facebook on Sundays is this that absolutely imperatively needs my attention immediately, such as the last time was someone inserted my wife Audi severely on Facebook. And most people who know me know if that happens, stay out of the way. You are about to see a firestorm take place and it will not be pretty because if anyone goes after her, my full wrath comes out at that point. But other than that, no. I mean, I, I tell people, I'm not answering questions on Sunday. The people I do help with answering questions, they say, you know, fine, I'm fine. That's that's cool with that. You can wait till Monday. It's not a a mega need. And before uh, I was doing law on theology web and Facebook, I used to be on Power Talk. And I remember, in fact, one day there was someone in there, and they have their own apologetics ministry. They're pretty well known. And they were speaking on the microphone, answering some questions. And they had a horrible cold. You could barely understand what they were saying. And I messaged him and said, dude, you need to step back. And he said, truth needs to be defended. I said, yes, 
Yes, it does. But you know what? You are not the only one doing it. There are several of us out there that are doing it. You go take your rest, and for now, the rest of us can cover your slack. Exactly. Mm. And this, and this, you know, kind of connects back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago mm. about um, games and leisure activities. Yeah. Because well, I think one of the most important ways that we evangelize is mm. through witness. Now, again, it, the witness has to be backed up by our ability to answer questions. Mm. But I think our witness um, in the world is one of the major things that draws people to ask the questions in the first place and to mm. know that they can ask me or you, right? Yeah. If, so we, we want to be presenting to the world our witness as joyful peaceful Christians, even even in the midst of adversity, um, mm. people who show the love of the Lord, who are lights in the world. And honestly, that's harder to do when you're stressed out and you've been working yourself to death. Um, mm. and, and again, notice that working yourself to death, because there are circumstances in which people have to, you know, to, you know, to feed their family. They've got to go to extreme lengths. They've got to work night and day. And you know, that's that's a different story. But and that's why the church would have more charity, in fact. Exactly. And but for most part if I'm, I'm here I'm kinda of speaking to apologists and I you know, I, I'm preaching to myself as well. <laughs> Very much mm-hmm. so. That we are in a unique position in that there are, you know, potentially no limits to how much time we could spend mm-hmm. on work. I mean, I you know, my teaching is in apologetics. I could spend all my free time doing it if you know, I wanted to, but then I would burn out, and I'd burn out pretty quickly. Right. And I'd be able to be the balanced, integrated person that I that I need to be, that I need yeah. to be trying to be. And and the same thing, like you know, being involved in different groups and activities. One of the things that kind of drives me crazy is when Christians talk about being in these activities only in terms of it being a a form of evangelism, like right. almost like infiltrating it, like ooh. Mm-hmm. I'm going to join my local chess club so that I can evangelize the chess players or, or whatever. Like, mm. no, that's actually completely the wrong attitude. If you mm. are a chess player, I'm not, but, you know, it's a, it's a neat game. Um, if you want, if you love chess, um, then go by all means, join the local chess club because you want to play chess. Right. Or join the local bicyclist club or the local running club or mm. the local Pokemon club. Because you enjoy it, and you enjoy the company of people who share that interest, mm-hmm. and then in that context of mutual interest, it will naturally come out, eventually, one would hope, um, that people discover that you're a Christian, um, you know, and that they'll realize, oh, I could talk to this person, but they'll also see that you're actually an okay person, one hopes. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's not the case, then this is, a, this is you know, time for self-examination, repentance, etc., um, and we're always working on ourselves. But this is actually the right way to, I think, approach engaging mm. in culture, not as a sort of espionage and infiltration mission, but oh. as a natural extension of our own joyful participation in things that we enjoy. You know, I really love how you use the term espionage and infiltration mission because I've described this in the past before as what I call mission impossible evangelism, where you pretty much say, okay, we have some lost people that we are going to get in there, we are going to tell them about Jesus, and we're going to get them converted right now. Instead of saying, we're going to go in there, we're just going to, you know, enjoy ourselves, because we enjoy that as well. 
and we're going to form relationships with these people. And, you know, if they come to Christ, that wonderful, like, we're right there, we're ready to answer questions. But if not, then I, I guess we're just not ready right now. And I'm, I'm, this is an important point to emphasize because I, I actually, I understand where the Mission Impossible folks are coming from. That's a great image, Nick. Because <laughs> there's a sense of urgency because, well, if you think about it, your atheist friend who's in, you know, in your, in your Pokemon club with you, mm-hmm. if your atheist friend dies tomorrow unexpectedly in a car accident, you know, at the very last minute, did that, that person realize I was wrong, I repent? I hope, I, I would hope and pray that that were the case. But right. we won't be able to know that. And mm-hmm. we'll have to admit, like, well, maybe that person's in hell. And that's, so that, I think, that sense of urgency of, well, I need to evangelize this person because, like, they could die and go to hell. And that's true. But the problem is, is that the mission impossible approach usually doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and I'm speaking myself as a former atheist, mm-hmm. that it's actually likely to make it more difficult for that person to come to Christ because mm. being pushy is obnoxious whether you're I mean we recognize this because if you like the joke is <laughs> there's a joke I heard if a, a vegan um, joins CrossFit um, when you meet them what do they talk about first <laughs> because there's this joke you know vegans are always you know, right. <laughs> how they, you know really if you just give up plant foods all your life would be better and then of course CrossFit well if you just join CrossFit you know so there are other things that people evangelize about that are secular, right? There, there, was, a, there was an old joke, and like a vegan and an atheist, theist and a liberal are walking to a bar. I only know it's because they told everyone within the first five minutes. Exactly. <laughs> but the thing is, if you think about it, how often did did somebody who comes in and sort of blasts you with, well, you should stop eating all animal products? Mm-hmm. Just because I told you so, you know how likely you to go home and say, "Hmm, I think I won't have that hamburger." Like right. very unlikely. Mm-hmm. If we think about it that way, in fact, <laughs> human psychology being what it is, I'm much more likely to go, "Oh well, I think I'm going to go have a steak," <laughs> just mm-hmm. because you irritated me. Right. So, I think the same thing with the Mission Impossible evangelization strategy. It doesn't work. Because for the one person who who is suddenly hit by it and says, "Oh, well, I should think about this," you're going to have 99 others who who are just annoyed by it, and you set them back who knows how many years in their in their spiritual journey. Yeah. Whereas the more subtle approach actually makes it more likely rather than less that they'll be interested sooner rather than later. So patience really pays off. Yeah, we we know this in most every single area of our life. Otherwise, I was thinking, for instance, when you were talking about, about the gaming culture, because I mean that's what I grew up doing a lot. And I've had so many times I've had some trouble in a game trying to get past a level or beat a certain boss. So I mean, I go and look up uh, something online like game FAQs or something about how to do this, and I can figure out. You know, the problem was I was trying to do this too quickly. If I move a lot slower, then it's a lot easier to get through this and do this. And that applies here in evangelism. If you take your time, you're probably going to do it better. But if you make a rush operation, you're going to make hasty mistakes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're dealing you know, we're dealing with people here. Right. And one of the things like I often get asked um in interviews, okay, what's what's the one book, apologetics book that you would recommend to people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and my first response is always, It depends. 
because different people have different questions, different Mm -hmm. people, different concerns. So until you know what that person's questions are, Mm -hmm. randomly picking an apologetics book, um, well, you know, I always end up then falling out by C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity because it's so good that if I'm going to recommend one book blindly, it'll be that Mm -hmm. book. But really, you need to find out what are the reasons. Like, I like to give the example, you know, if somebody says, well, I, I can't believe in God because a good God wouldn't allow suffering. Well, there's there's a couple of different possibilities that are behind that. Before you launch into, you know, say the free will defense, you want to stop and find out, okay, is this person saying that because their college roommates just gave them, you know, a, a bunch of arguments in their in their dorm room last night and he's just you know, rehashing what he heard, or is it because their little sister is just diagnosed with leukemia? (laughs) Right. Three different situations. Yeah. I had someone send me a question from a ministry I work with, and we're talking about they they struggle with anxiety and doubt. We said, I'm not sure how to answer this one. And I emailed back, and it took a few days before he realized what was going on. I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to answer your question. What I'm going to tell you instead is this other question. Worst case scenario, what does it mean if this objection is true? Because it was about a secondary issue. And he said, well, I guess it really doesn't say anything about Christianity if this is true. I said, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, worst case scenario is he meant, for instance, lose inerrancy. But you know what? You've still got Jesus rose from the dead and everything else. And he said, do you see it now? I said, yeah. I said, see, the thing is, Rather than give you the immediate answer, you need to learn how to come to those answers yourself and why you have those questions instead. And if I'd answered his question, I predict I would have been doing that so many times. And But then just said, nope, I want to know why you're asking that question. And then here's how you need to approach these questions. That's just that's fantastic. That's, mm-hmm. like, that's just absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to a point that um, I've, I've said before, and I think is worth underscoring. That, and this actually is again, again, part of the culture in a way that's almost invisible. Mm-hmm. He, because post enlightenment, we have this obsession with certainty that we have to be certain about things, and we've we've blurred we've blurred the distinction between things that you can be certain of, objectively speaking, like mm-hmm. I can be certain that I have two pencils on my desk because um, I can count them, and things that we can be certain of subjectively speaking, as in I can be certain, you know, that my mother loves me, although I, I can't, like, you know, take it out and, and dissect it and prove it that way. Right. Um, and I think I've seen this, for instance, in some of the people I've, I've, I've spoken with who are wrestling with the faith or who have been recently come to faith, and one of the things they have difficulty with is that they don't have a sense of what they think faith feels like. They think it means complete emotional certainty boom just like that right. and so often they're a little bit shocked when I when I say well no you know like I myself as a Christian um, have a deeper relationship with the Lord than I did 10 years ago or five years ago um, certainly actually my my confidence in my faith and my my just certainty of it has grown much deeper since I've become a Catholic um, and that's it's an organic process and you can't just you know, become a Christian um, and instantly have this sort of emotional certainty because that's sort of not 
how it works. Um, and a lot of people, I think, they don't take that step of faith in affirming, you know, accepting the Lord Jesus because they think they don't believe in that they actually intellectually accept everything is true, but they don't have a certain undefinable confidence. And that makes them think, well, I don't really have faith. But, well, no, if you're willing to take the step, then you have faith, because faith is trust. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a sense, it's trust. Um, so that can be an, a, an obstacle to um, evangelism, this this misunderstanding about about what doubt and what faith actually are and how how much emphasis to put on them. Um, and I'd like to remind everyone you're listening to the Deeper Wars podcast. We've got Hardy Ordway here with us this week from HBU talking about a cultural apologetics. But next week, we're not having a regular podcast. And this is for a different reason. We're going to try and pour up on my feet. But next week, I'm going to be joining Jonathan McClatchy as he interviews me on the Apologetics Academy, talking about deeper waters and the resurrection and an honor-shame perspective and such. We're talking about a different culture there. So I hope next week you'll be listening to the Apologetics Academy. And hey, feel free to join in and interact with me and get asked the questions and things of that sort. Be there from 3 to 6. And just in case I don't get to say it then, the week after that, we're going to have William Webb on. And he's going to be talking for an hour with us about his book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. It's a very interesting title. For now, let's get back to uh, Dr. Ordway. Now, one thing that I was thinking about with what you said also is that it's also treating all people like they're all alike. They have the same temperament and such. When we go to a church service, for instance, and one of the times that Allie and I can hate the most is the time of, okay, everyone get up and turn and greet your neighbor. Such because oh. we, we are very much introverts. The only way I, time I enjoy about that is just turning to Allie and say, now remember, honey, the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> and, and then afterwards asking, so um, have I greeted you yet? Yes. Okay. Have I greeted you yet? Yes. But beyond that, Allie is someone who really enjoys the music of a church service. Me, I prefer to say, hey, can we just sit down and go straight to the sermon so many times? And if I go to music, frankly, a lot of modern church music doesn't do a thing for me, really. I prefer the old classic hymns. I mean, they start singing, holy, 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 I'm going to sit down and just be thinking, uh, I, I, I'm not worthy enough to stand for this one. Because that, 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 that's the hymn I think has some of the best theology in it. And when I get to the sermon, I want a sermon that's not just, here's the application, here's how you're supposed to be a good person and such. I want something about, tell me something about God, something about Christ that I would not have known before. And that drives me to worship. Now, Allie won't be tickled intellectually the same way that I am, and I won't be tickled through music in such the same way she is, and that's all right. But when we come... Too often we seem to have this idea of one size fits all. We should always respond the same way to everything. Yeah, um, and I also think that one size fits all. It it, it happens with with church services themselves right. because I think people have not got the sense that 
we've we've got to we've got to make sure that we reach the most people at the same time, you know, with everything um, during our one hour that we've got them on Sunday because because I don't know, like I guess they think well we're not going to get them any other time, right. um, but unfortunately that ends up you end you can end up really getting a, a mismatch or an un, you know an unbalanced approach. One of the things I've really come to appreciate in is liturgical worship. Started when I was um, still uh, an Anglican, and obviously now as a Catholic, because there's a structure to mm-hmm. the liturgy where you've got the readings from Scripture, you've got sermon, you you know have music, um, you've got communal prayers, and so you have a structure, and it's always the same. Um, mm-hmm. The readings differ, the music differs, the, the sermon differs, but it's all you know in, in the Catholic service. Obviously, it's all centered around the Eucharist. Um, but there's a, I think, a really helpful lesson there, which is, for instance, in a liturgical service, the focus isn't necessarily, um, well, it's not, on the sermon. Um, I mean, it's the, the it's first this focus is in the gospel, and then it's on, on the um, communion. Mm-hmm. So the, the sermon's there as kind of a supporting, supporting piece um, to elucidate the gospel, to help people understand it and, and, mm-hmm. and connect with it. And that's, you know, led me to think, like, okay, well, if I want to get a more intellectual approach, um, you know, that's actually maybe Sunday morning isn't the time for that. Maybe that's for me, you know, to go and read on my own. Maybe that's for the Bible study that meets separately. Um, Or, you know, for the music, I think there's certain types of music, I'm I'm with you on the hymns, actually, Nick, Um, Mm -hmm. certain types of music that I think are appropriate for worship because the the lyrics are more theologically oriented, it's uplifting, but the more energetic kind of dance kind of music, well, that, I don't really think that's a good choice for a Sunday worship service. Now, it might be great for an evening get-together where you're, you know, you're in fellowship. So I, I think this one-size-fits-all can, can be, you know, dangerous both in terms of ex- expecting people to respond the same, but also trying to make that one Sunday morning slot do everything, you know, for edifying and, and supporting um, every every single person in the congregation. Well, kind of no. And so we need, you know, to to have multiple ways that we're engaging people you know, throughout the week, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking also about something you said earlier about establishing ourselves in the culture, you know, joining a club not to reach a few because we like doing it and then combining it with the whole thing. I said, but you could be doing evangelism because I remember the day we heard this, I think the night before, Allie and I have been out and we said, you know what, we don't have much money. We got a little bit now. Let's talk about CCs and just have a dinner together. And so we went go go to the buffet, and that's our date for the week and such. I and mean, we we still spend so much time together and such constantly. But every now and then we just go out there. I don't bring any books with me. It's just us there. And you know, people, someone could say, well, you know, instead of going out on a date or being romantic with your wife, you could be doing some evangelism. But I'm thinking there's a there was a different kind of evangelism going on. I, I don't do it to intend evangelism, but it just works that way because she also said something to me about how said, I know you post all these things from I love my wife and such on Facebook and it's very nice, but I'd like to just hear something directly from you. So every day this week, 
except for Sunday, since I don't post on Sundays. I've been posting some marriage thought and telling about what a difference my wife makes. And personally, I think that has done a whole lot more evangelism for others, even though that's not my intent, because yeah, people call me and say, I really appreciate this. Some of them will share and say, you two have such a great marriage. It's such an inspiration to all of us. And I see, I think one of the best things people can do today in Christian ministry is to love their families. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, mm -hmm. the family is in the family is, is, has been called the domestic church. Right. And I think that's a really good description because mm -hmm. that's where it starts. Uh, and I think this is going to look it's going to look different for for different people. Um, right. You're married. Um, I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, you know, my family is you know my my parents. Um, you know, it's my, my friends, um, and so that's going to be expressed in a, in a different way. Right. Uh, but the same principle is there that, you know, I have my, my close friends um, that, you know, I pray for and I keep in touch with and, you know, and making sure that I, that I have time for them. Because that's the thing. You have to have time for the people you love, right. whether it's your spouse whether it's your parents, whether it's your children, or whether it's your close friends, you've got to spend time with these people, not in order to cultivate them, you know, for evangelization or for whatever, but just because you love them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this, it's good in itself, um, but it also has the, the beneficial effect that it really does make a witness to the world. Because we're supposed to show the world this is what love looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think actually that having strong families, um, strong, stable families, I mean, that's one of the tragic things in our culture today with divorce mm -hmm. the way that it is, with people not getting married, with cohabitation, um, mm -hmm. that strong, stable, loving families that get through difficulties together, even strong, stable friendships, right. that's is a really countercultural witness that is really powerful. You know, when you talk about associating these people and not getting saved, but just because they're your family and such, I, I just think so often that if we do, if we do otherwise with people, we're in essence treating them like projects, as if they're just objects to get saved, and that's it. And frankly, I think most people. Are can tell when we're not interested in them for them, but we're just interested in using them as, say, this is how awesome I am. I got this person to come to Christ. I know. It's just, it's terrible because people can tell. They really mm -hmm. can. And I always think to myself, you know, the so-called friendship evangelism, if, if, if you're becoming friends with someone so that they become Christian, what happens if they don't? Right. Do you give them after a certain period of time? You yeah. say, oh, sorry, time's up. I'm going to move on to somebody more productive. Like, oh, it, that, that's just so wrong. Um, right. So I, I think we have to love people, you know, for who they are. Mm -hmm. And now that doesn't, here's the thing, that doesn't mean that we have to agree with them right. on everything. And it doesn't mean that we have to endorse what they're doing. And so I think that it's it's important, especially because now in the in the culture, a lot of the people that we come in contact with are very likely going to be engaged in certain behaviors that are objectively wrong. Um, right. Whether it's homosexual behavior or it's cohabitation or what have you, chances are 
somebody in the groups that you're involved in is going to be doing it. Um, so I think we have to strike a balance because if we try to say, well, I'm not going to associate in any way with someone who is a sinner, well, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> but also I think we need to say, okay, we do have to draw some boundary lines. We, we don't want to participate in these things, um, which is I think one of the reasons why the question of whether Christians um, should go to quote-unquote weddings of um same-sex couples, I say quote-unquote, because this is the, the, ma the major important fact here is that same-sex marriage is ontologically impossible because that's not what marriage is, um, even though it's being called that. Um, but in any case, um, do, you, do you go, you know, if they're your friends, and I, you know, I would come down on the side of no, um, because if you go, you are at least in some way saying that you think this is a real thing. And that you endorse it so no uh, is that going to be painful and hurtful to your friend you know probably maybe but it'll also be a witness that you can say hey you know I you know I care about you too much to give you a mixed message about what I believe um, that mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. so I, when it comes to friendships you know I think we need to be able to have at least friendly acquaintances with people who lifestyles maybe we recognize as being objectively sinful. And then, though, we can say our close friends, the people whom we really have strong connections to, that's where I think it becomes more important and indeed essential that these are people who, who share our faith. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think it is really difficult um, to have a, a, a really close friend um, who is so different from you um, and doesn't, you know, doesn't share that belief. But I will say it's possible because I know that there are instances um, in which, like I've just recently read Nabil Qureshi's. Um, I was about to recommend that one. Very good. And one of the things there is that he, Nabil talks about um, how his friendship um, with, with his friend David, I think it is. David Wood. Yeah, that friendship, which went on when David was a Christian and Nabil was still Muslim, right. that friendship was very strong um, and it was part of what helped him to Christ. Mm. So I think it is possible for people who really differ on some major issues to be close friends. Um, but I think, again, this is, this is in a way a bit exceptional. Um, it's, it's, not, it's notable because of how remarkable it is. Um, I think in our... our, our our core is probably going to be people um, who, who share our beliefs. Or at least I would venture to say probably um, if, if we have some close friends who maybe we differ with in certain profound ways, we probably have others who are who do share our faith. Um, and that's going to provide the foundation that's going to enable us to be able to be friends with people who don't share our beliefs because if I don't have someone to whom I can turn and say hey will you pray for me yeah. that's going to be really hard mm -hmm. um, but I also need to be out there being friends and neighbors with people who disagree with me yeah. and in case you all don't know about the book out there the book is Nabil Qureshi's book Seeking Allah Finding Jesus this is really an excellent excellent read it's funny it's touching and it's filled with good information the story of David Wood and the Bill Qureshi's friendship is an excellent one, and that friendship has continued well to this day. Now, we've talked about people going out there and evangelizing the culture, but there's also the other end with 
people who want to go out there and say they're going to isolate themselves. I'm remembering, and yes, this is going to be a never comment that's going to make you groan, being in a small group when we were in Knoxville at a church, and they're talking about a lot of Christians, unfortunately, get caught in a whole lot of end times, paranoia, and such. And it's one day you say, well, you know what? I'm saved. My children are saved. So we're just going to sit back and wait for Jesus to come. Oh, gosh. Oh, oh dear. Yes. Uh, well, it's like, where do you even begin with that? Exactly. Like, I mean, well... Okay, I, okay, where I would probably begin, first of all, is to, just to think back to Genesis mm. and to know that God gave Adam um, and Eve work to do before mm. the fall. Um, he had them tend the garden. Mm. Um, he had them engaged in the cultivation of creation. Um, so they weren't just sitting around saying, well, I'm saved and my wife is saved and we're done. <laughs> they were actually doing something because this is, this is what God had called them to do. Um, so if that's true before the fall, I think it's certainly true after the fall. Um, and so, and I think here, here I think we start to come up also to uh, some defects in our cultural imagination about heaven. Mm-hmm. And I think, and this is something that was really an obstacle for me in coming to faith. So I think it's it's worth it's worth noting. I think it's probably a case for other people as well. I think too often, heaven sounds really boring. Yes. I mean, I know that when I was a kid, it, the picture I had of Christian heaven was bland and dull, mm-hmm. but the picture I had of, like, you know, imaginary, like, mythological heaven, like, at least Valhalla with the Vikings feasting, at least that sounded like, <laughs> at least there's good food, you know? Or maybe Narnia, you know, like, even. Well, that's actually, that's, that's different, because that actually is a Christian vision of heaven. Right. Um. Uh, and actually, that's a particularly valuable one because I, I love Narnia, mm. um, even as a kid, didn't know it was Christian, mm. um, but it's captivating. And so that was really helpful because when I eventually did start to think about Christian ideas, that image of Narnia um, helped me in, in starting to have a sense of like, oh, this idea of heaven is not just like a disembodied spirits. Um, because that I think is a ama- and this is this is Gnosticism. This is a heresy. Um, it has mm-hmm. really affected our culture. Right. This idea that, our, that heaven, quote unquote, is going to be us just sort of floating around as spirits. Well, no, that's right. the intermediate state. You know, when we die, if you know, if it so happens that we die before the second coming, our bodies are going to be dis- disassociated from our spirits as a temporary thing until the second coming and the general resurrection we'll get our bodies back mm. uh, resurrection bodies glorified bodies when we're going to have bodies when I did my grandmother's funeral I remember her pastor spoke before me and said right now she is experiencing the power of a resurrection I said, and I'm thinking no I think her body is still right there yeah so you know the souls the souls of the just are with God um mm. And but they're waiting. They don't have. They're not in their final state. They know the, those who are, you know, in heaven. Um, you know, they they're, you know, waiting. Um, mm. And and so 
we're looking forward not to the intermediate states, although it's going to be fine, it's obviously fine to be in the intermediate state, but we're looking forward to the ultimate general resurrection in which there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And mm -hmm. so everything is going to be renewed. We're going to have the earth, and it's going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. So what we do matters. It's not like this is just a cosmic waiting room. I mean, what will be the point of all, all this, really, if we're just kicking our heels until we're disembodied spirits? I think a truly incarnational theology really involves, I mean, that's really why sexuality is so important. Because what we do with our bodies matters. Uh, it's also why care of the environment matters. And that's something I really wish Christians would take up and take back from the radical leftist greens. Because care of the environment is ought to be a deeply Christian issue. Um, preserving the environment, stewarding it, um, protecting it from, you know, exploitation, uh, planting trees, protecting mm -hmm. national parks. This is stewardship of creation. And you know what? I, I mean, I don't know. We don't know the details of what the new new earth is going to be like. But I have a feeling that if I plant daffodils in my garden, you know, this is an act of, of stewardship of God's creation. You know what? I have a feeling that in the new heavens and the new earth, those daffodils are going to somehow have a part to play let me put it that way I don't think that what we do anything that we do here that is good will be preserved and it will be purified so what we do really matters if anyone's interested by the way let's go back to early in 2013 I think it was May 30th I'm not entirely sure but I did interview E. Calvin Beisner who runs the Cornwall Alliance for Stewardship of Creation and we talked about the environmental movement and how Christians should really leave away in this. But before we go on the interview, I'd like to let everyone know that what we do here is listener-supported, and we depend on the work of people like you, your support and such. We're working together. I mean, Dr. Ward, we talked about charity earlier. Well, this is part of charity, in fact. And that's that if, when we talk paying daffodils, if you like the fruit that's being presented in this ministry, Take part in the garden work. Help us out financially, if you can. How do you do that? Go to deeperwaters.ddns.net. If you can't find it, just search for my name or ask me on Facebook or something. I'll tell you how to get there. There's a link there under Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that, and it will take you to Risen Jesus. And... Have you gone to that place? Yes. That's the, in, that's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. They are in charge of that for us. You make a donation, and then you contact Mike or Debbie or Allie or I, and you say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax deductible as well. And if you can be a monthly donor, let us know. We will sign you up to be a monthly donor. And... Gosh, we would greatly appreciate that. Honestly, I wish there was something I could do right now to show you the appreciation. I really can't, unfortunately. But hopefully something in the future I will be able to. Now, you can also uh, go to Amazon, buy some e-books we've got for sale. Dr. Ordway talked about the Apostles' Creed being what everyone believes that HBU and holds to, at least amongst staff. I have an e-book on the Apostles' Creed, a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in today's Christian. Glad to have you buy it. 
I have some that I've co-written, Christian Answers for This Generation's Questions, or Groundless, or God and Natural Disasters, or Defining Inerrancy. And then if you want another way to support us, guys, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but women really like jewelry. Now, we've been talking about being a good husband to your wife some here. Get jewelry sometime. Because, you know, you can make up for that big mistake you made in the past. Or you can make up in advance of that screw-up you're going to make in the future. Yes, I know you're going to make it. I'm going to make it, okay? You go to our store here. It's uh, ran by Lena Custer. It's Premier Jewelers there. And you make a purchase and let us know. 25% of what you purchase will go to Deeper Waters. Now, uh, if you can't do this, pray for us. Let us know somehow, email, Facebook, anything, how much you appreciate the ministry. One other great way you could do it is go on iTunes and leave a positive review. I really love seeing those reviews. Now, Dr. Ordway, do you have an organization that you would like to see people donate to? Actually, I have, I have two that I'd like to mention briefly. Go ahead. Smaller ones. Um, one is the G.K. Chesterton Library in mm -hmm. Oxford, England. And this is a, a small organization, very much in need of donations. Um, you can find it by Googling um, G.K. Chesterton Library, um, Oxford. And they actually have a collection of Chesterton manuscripts and paintings and art. And they do programming. Um, and they really need just, you know, to continue working and supporting this and, you know, pay for librarian. And Chesterton is such a great example of oh, yes. inspiration and joy um, and, you know, what it means to be a witness as well as a working apologist that I think encouraging the work of the, of the Chesterton Library is a great way to help encourage, you know, more people to know about Chesterton and, and to admire him and to be kind of inspired by his, his joyful Christian witness. Um, so you can you can look up for them. They're also, they're associated also with an organization called Second Spring. So if you see that, um, you'll know you're on the right track. Chesterton, yep. I have a devotion or by him. I read from Chesterton every night. He is just brilliant. Um, yeah. And I find actually Chesterton is a great um, sort of refresher. I find that as a you know as a cultural apologist, I often have to read um, stuff that's pretty dark you know, atheists and, you know, people who are just not cultural trends are going the wrong direction. And when I find myself getting kind of down about that, I think it's time for some Chesterton because <laughs> he he's so sane and he's so devout and he's so happy and he's he's just like, he's just wonderful. Um, he's a real refresher. And your second organization? Um, the second organization is Oxford Students for Life. And they have a blog and a presence on Facebook. And the reason I mentioned them um, is that I think this is a great model for a pro-life group. They've done wonderful work with bringing in speakers to Oxford University. Um, and I, I highlight them in particular because Oxford is an extremely secular environment. So their success at Oxford really, I think, is an encouragement for pro-life groups all over the world who are you know, in less secular environments than they are. And the thing I really like about Oxford Students for Life, OSFL, is that they're really integrated in their pro-life approach because they, they're, um, you know, doing advocacy and talks um, against abortion, um, against euthanasia, um, you, know, you know, for disability rights. But they're also doing, you know, initiatives, for instance, to support student parents and to help promote a culture of life in the positive sense as well. And I think that's a real model for how pro-life groups 
can and should work to be sort of integrated pro-life and to be both, you know, supporting dialogue and discussion. Um, and they've had, for instance, debates and panels with speakers with uh, very opposing views because they, they want to you know, encourage people to think about these things. And also doing actual hands-on work to help make it easier to choose life. And I think mm-hmm. it's such a great model. Uh, do you know who's in charge of it? It's actually a student-run group. My um, my colleague um, at HBU, Michael Ward, is mm-hmm. actually the faculty supervisor for the group. So there's an HBU connection as well. Okay. Um, okay. So he, he's the he's the, the faculty um, sort of they call a senior member, the faculty supervisor. But it's a it's a completely student-run group um, at Oxford University. Now we were talking about heaven, and we never really got to finish about because you said something at the start, but I think it's really good and just never got to conclude it about. How usually if you send them church services, most part, if you hear about descriptions of heaven, there really isn't much appealing about it. It's pretty boring. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great and tragic loss because how can we, you know, desire to be saved, mm-hmm. <laughs> really fully desire it, if we don't have a picture of what we're being saved for? Mm-hmm. Because avoidance of hell is one motivation, okay, and a good one, but it's mm-hmm. not the motivation. Right. This actually is something where I want to mention an aspect of cultural apologetics that most people may have overlooked, and that's architecture. Mm-hmm. Because architecture is actually a really profound way of sharing important ideas with the public mm-hmm. um, in a way that's both intellectual and imaginative. Now, traditionally, um, a cathedral, for instance, has a very, very strong um, symbolism. And one of the one of the things that it symbolizes um, is intended to evoke is actually heaven. So if you go into you know some older cathedrals or newer ones that are built you know in the traditional style, if you look overhead, for instance, you're likely to see the ceiling painted, um, at least some of it painted blue with stars um, to evoke the canopy of the heavens. You'll see angels. Um, you'll see you know stained glass of, of all kinds. Um, you know, in the orientation, drawing your eye towards, you know, the cross, um, towards the altar. Um, and all of these things, the beauty um, and the majesty of the space means that when you step into a really beautiful church, a really be- beautiful cathedral, you're actually entering into something that's intentionally evoking heaven mm-hmm. um, and, and intentionally you know, kind of shifting your mental framework to say, I'm not actually in the workaday world anymore. While I'm in here, I'm I'm kind of getting a window into into heaven. And this is why I think, um, you know, both Protestant church architecture and and some modernist Catholic architecture has has kind of gone wrong in thinking well we don't we don't need to worry about any of that we'll just you know we've got our preaching we've got our scriptures you know we've got space for people to assemble in well the thing is we you know we, as we talked about earlier in the show um, we are made by God to respond to our environment to respond to beauty and our surroundings are sending a message somehow whatever that message might be. Um, mm-hmm. Now, granted, it's better to meet for worship than not to meet for worship. Right. So if the only place that you can meet is in somebody's basement or in a, you know, in a gymnasium, then you should meet there. Yeah, I, I don't think we should be concerned that, for instance, that Christians in China can't meet in a cathedral. They can meet anywhere, that's better. 
Yeah, but I think sometimes in, in rightly saying that, people can then wrongly say, therefore, we shouldn't make any effort at beautiful cathedrals because not all of our brothers and sisters in Christ have them. Well, yeah. that's, that's like saying because some people, you know, are, are surviving in bread and water, we shouldn't, you know, have a well-balanced meal. Like, it's good that they're meeting wherever they can meet, but, you know, in, in church history, as soon as Christians could safely come out of their houses and the catacombs, the, one of the very first things they did was to begin to build churches and to build right. them that were beautiful right, right at the beginning. Right. Um, and, and this is a way of evoking a reaction that is actually really profoundly evangelistic because a lot of people will go into a church who are not Christians or who are just sort of vaguely Christian but not serious and actually have, a, have an encounter with, with God's grace through the art, through the just mm. the ambiance of the space that's so intentionally designed. And one of the points I want to make here as well is that sometimes um, Christians will, or others, will criticize the expense of building, say, beautiful churches because they'll say, why don't you give that money to the poor? Bill Moore does that in religious. And that's a really... It's it's a really ah it drives me crazy because it's, it's kind of true because we should be supporting the poor but we have to ask ourselves well <laughs> you know man does not live by bread alone if we one of the things about churches is that anybody can go in you can be I mean I've been in many Catholic churches where there are homeless people who have come in um, you know any poor rich tourist you know parishioner. You can come into the church and you can see that beauty. Mm. It is available for everyone. Now, here's, here's the thing. People like Bill Maher, I think, are very classist because they're taking for granted a very middle class or upper middle class idea, which is that I can make my home beautiful. Well, if you're poor and you're just struggling to make ends meet and put food on the table and you're living in some horrible neighborhood – and, you know, hardly have any space in your house, you probably don't have surroundings that are really aesthetically pleasing, and it's not really possible for you to make them particularly beautiful because you don't have the money or the opportunity. But if that person can walk down the street and go into that cathedral, that person then has the opportunity to enjoy beauty for free. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something, that's a gift mm -hmm. to poor. It's a gift of beauty. Mm -hmm. um, and if you just take that money and you give it to them, you know, for food, well, you may have fed them in the stomach, and we need to do that. We need to do that. Yeah. But we also need to feed their soul by beauty. Um, and that's where I think the importance of, well, public spaces, but particularly of churches, because we can say, come enter into the kingdom of heaven, you know, enjoy, feed yourself on on this beauty and will help you be fed and warm as well. I, mean, I think that's an important way of outreach. You know, we're here to talk about cultural apologetics. And something that strikes me also about this topic is that, I mean, when I read the Bible, I often tell people to remember the Bible comes from a different culture. It's an honor-shame culture. It's, an, it's not an individualistic culture like we have today. And, you know, we still live in the same problem. And one of the problems we have in our world today, especially in the West, is we tend to think that everyone out there is just like us. I mean, what can we do about that? 
That's a great question, and that really ties right in to a lot of what the work is of a cultural apologist. Um, mm-hmm. Because our first, really as apologists, our, our first task is to understand the culture in which we're working because there are all sorts of assumptions going on there. So, for instance, I mean, this isn't my field, but, um, you know, people who work in um, apologetics to Muslims really have to understand that the honor-shame culture is still alive and well in, in that culture. There are different expectations. There are different, you know, stumbling blocks, and there are different positive ideas that can be picked up. Um, that's, I think, relatively easy for most people to recognize. But what I think can be a little bit trickier is when things are close enough to home that they're so close that you don't see them. You don't kind of see the forest for the trees. And the example that, that comes to mind is the difference uh, that I've experienced between English culture and American culture. Because I spend my summers in Oxford, England. Um, I go there every summer to write, to read, um, to do research, and just frankly to enjoy myself um, in this beautiful city. Uh, and I've noticed, you know, over the years, I've been, I've been doing this for um, about five about five years now, um, spending my summers there. And, you know, just like they make the joke that Americans and English are um, two, two cultures divided by a common language, there's a lot of subtle differences between English and American culture that we can totally miss because we speak the same language and we have, um, at least, you know, depending on your region, substantial shared cultural elements. And this has a lot of relevance for apologists. So, for instance, um, as a general rule, um, even you know, allowing for differences in personalities, Americans are much more extroverted than English people, much more willing to talk to strangers, much more willing to just, you know, be open and enthusiastic about a topic um, overtly to people that you don't know. English people are much more reserved um, much less likely to talk about um, serious issues with a stranger. Um, and there's a car that just went by on my street. Um, and so we have this, a real difference in temperament. And this can really impact apologetics because, for instance, um, if, as I've seen people do, people will send a mission trip over to, from America to evangelize the English, and attempting to do it by just, well, walking up to people um, and trying to engage them in conversation about religion. So, what do you think about Jesus? And then being a bit kind of shocked or, or put off when the, the response is typically kind of a fumbling, like, I, I don't want to talk about that and, you know, walk away. And the conclusion I would draw is not necessarily that the English people um, don't have beliefs, aren't interested in them, don't take them seriously. But if they don't talk about these things with random strangers who walk up to them on the street, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just not it's just not the thing. Um, if you want to talk about that sort of topic, you, you really need to have a context of relationship, a context of, of friendship, um, or at least acquaintanceship. Right. And I think if you don't have that understanding, you can have some, some serious misfires in terms of how you approach evangelizing that person. Um, and I think having a sort of basic read of well, what kind of what what are the cultural expectations for this kind of conversation is going to let you create environments where that sort of conversation will actually happen. You know that kind of thing can also happen close to home because so many times we think you have to go overseas or something to meet someone in another culture and know them. You just have to walk right outside your house. I mean, I. 
Yeah, I, I spoke at William Lane Craig's Defenders class on the 21st of August, and uh, I gave a talk on loving your disabled neighbor. And in that talk, one thing that I think I said is that we are very, very withdrawn people most of the time. If you come up to us, are extroverted, happy, want to get to know us and such, inside we're panicking and screaming at that point. Yeah, and so you end up actually having an opposite effect than right. what you want. Um, and, you know, good intentions will only take you so far. Mm. Um, we, need to, we need to respect the people whom we're speaking to. Um, and I'm extremely introverted myself, so I have a tremendous sympathy for that. And, you know, mm -hmm. you bring up a really good point, Nick, about, you know, just within your own neighborhood, um, because, you know, America is very diverse. And, you know, in some regions of the country, extremely diverse even within a single city or neighborhood so we need to make sure that if we are reaching out to our neighbors who are coming from a different cultural background that we're doing it on a basis of respect and of, of learning you know what is their culture and not importing assumptions about it like mm. oh my neighbors are Mexican therefore they must fill in the blank well Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe you're familiar with Mexican culture. Maybe you're not. Maybe you need to find out what your neighbors are actually like and, and, and what their personality is and what their needs are before, you know, kind of jumping in on the basis of, oh, obviously they must have such and such, you know, expectation or belief. So I think that can be really, really helpful. Yeah, I think we in the Christian church should know this way. I mean, I don't know how many times in the apologetics ministry, I've had people come to me and say, well, yeah, but you believe in an earth that's 6,000 years old, and you believe X, Y, Z. It's like, well, no, some Christians believe that, but if you want to know what I believe, maybe you should start by asking me first, <laughs> instead of having me right off have to start to defend a bunch of things I don't believe in. Exactly. And the same thing, I mean, it, that goes both ways, because right. um, we can you know, without realizing it, be projecting our expectations about unbelievers or skeptics or seekers mm -hmm. are thinking when they may not think anything like it. Mm -hmm. um, and even the kind of the language that they're they're using, like um, I remember a conversation that um, I had with my landlady in Oxford where, you know, when we first getting to know her, she said, oh, I'm an atheist. Um, okay. And they said, but I believe in God. I thought, oh, Okay. Um, and so now some people might think, oh, you know, what is she talking about? But I thought to myself, well, clearly what she means by atheist is not the meaning that I would give to the word. Um, and she's not a native speaker of English. And so, you know, I wonder what she does mean by that. And what it turned out that she meant was actually more she was a spiritual seeker, but hadn't arrived at kind of a formal acceptance of, of, of a personal God. And so we ended up having, you know, some interesting conversations off and on, just little bits. I didn't want to be pushy about it. Um, and I was actually really pleased to find the following, you know, uh, year when I went back and stayed in the same lodgings that uh, she actually had begun to attend church, um, you know, as, you know, moving, moving toward Christian belief. I'm still not entirely sure where she is, but she's going to church. Um, she's obviously a much closer step toward a relationship with, with Jesus um, perhaps she's already there. Um, 
this is in England, I'm not going to press the issue too much because that would be that would be kind of rude. Mm-hmm. But it, it strikes me that with individuals, we, we really need to be very willing to say, um, what do you mean by that? Or, well, what's, what question do you have? Because we we might assume, um, like I might have assumed with my with my landlady, that, um, oh, well, you don't believe in God. Let me give you five arguments for the existence of God. Mm-hmm. Well, she actually already believed in a creator. Um, it was really the incarnation that we end up having a conversation about. Uh, so we need, to, we need to find out what, you know, within the larger culture, within the subculture, and then for the individual, what's the question that person actually has, not the one that we think they have. Yeah, as I was listening, I was thinking about the, the Ali and I are going to be going to an anime convention this year because she loves anime and her parents gave her a gift of going to the convention before, of course, I, I go alone because someone has to drive and such. And she's got someone she really likes and works with does voice acting and such, and he's a devout Christian. And there was a video you can see of him dealing with some people outside on the street of a convention carrying the signs. And, of course, we all know what those kinds of signs say mm-hmm. from Christians. And having to say, you know what, you are, t- you are, you're, you're turning these people off of the very message that you're given from the one they need to hear. Because all you're, all they're hearing is, hell fire, hell fire, burn, 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 and it doesn't reach any of them. Exactly. Because, uh, again, I want to say these people are well-intentioned. They yeah. want saved souls. But you have to say, is this actually reaching people? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I want to say, and I've, I've heard this so many times, but there's always the one person who has the story of I saw the sign and it jolted my conscience and, you know, I got on the right path. Yeah, that can happen. But, you know, God gave us minds um, for a reason to be able to discern how can we most effectively preach the word? How can we mm-hmm. most effectively share it? Um, and if, you know, God can bring good out of all of our models, but we still need to try not to muddle as much as we can. And so finding out, like, what, what does this mean to people? And I think, you know, in terms of cultural apologetics, you know, it's really important that we be able to explain what we believe and to give reasons for our faith and to explain it. But I think there's a really big part of the cultural aspect of apologetics that means being the person that people will want to talk to in the first place. Mm-hmm. And like your, like your wife's friend at the anime convention, um, he's, you know, as a devout Christian in that context, in fellowship, um, I bet he's the kind of person they're much more likely mm-hmm. to have a conversation with. Mm-hmm. And so this is why I think it can be really helpful. Some of the, you know, b- very basic um, kind of cultural markers of being Christian um, now, like, for instance, wearing a cross doesn't actually signal that much anymore because it's become absorbed into a kind of generic fashion culture where, where people will wear a cross and it doesn't mean anything. They have or a other witness wear. Sorry? Or other witness wear, as it's called. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we need to think about what, what, are we, what are we wearing that's going to be signaling that. And I think we also need to be attentive to, you know, like, I hadn't actually heard the term witness wear, um, but like a t-shirt with a slogan on it um, could be helpful, but it could also, if it's, I mean, I've seen some that frankly are 
are kind of vulgar um, <laughs> and, you know, making puns about Jesus and the cross that, that I actually, as a Christian, find almost, you know, quasi-blasphemous. Mm-hmm. I think we, we need to be careful that, you know, when we're doing the, our signals with our clothing that we're, that we're not trying to be hip <laughs> and failing <laughs> and in, in, in failing, um, you know, being not very effective. But I'm also thinking of behavior. Um, like I, I know that um, something that people notice is when Christians pause to pray before a meal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not talking about big, ostentatious throat clearing. Okay, let's see, make everybody notice me. That actually is just annoying. But when you look at a table of mixed um, Christians and non-Christians, like, for instance, at a, an academic conference, I think it's really significant when you notice people who will, you know, briefly pause, close their eyes. You know, you know, you can obviously tell that they're briefly praying, um, you know, over their own meal. And then, you know, they're fellowshipping and talking with their with their colleagues and I think people notice these things a lot more than you might think. Um, and even that tiny statement of, okay, I'm out in the world, I'm you know engaged in a in an activity that includes non-Christians, but I'm still going to give thanks for my food. Um, you know, that's that's a tiny little cultural statement that that people actually notice. If you ever watched the Food Network, Barton Brown, on there, I understand, is not only a devout Christian. But also, whenever he's out at restaurants, he does indeed pray before he has a meal. And something I've been told, and I'll be honest, I'm not good with saying grace, okay, but so I've been told beforehand that can be helpful is if you're at a restaurant, if a waiter comes by, if it's all you and you're all Christians, ask him or ask the waitress if there's something they'd like to have prayed for. Most of them won't be rude about it or anything, and you can honestly get to talk with them that way. Yeah, um, and and then if they say uh, no, then you you let it go, um, yeah. and you know, and that's and that's that. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think this is a, you know, we can we can model these things and we can engage in a kind of witness with our behavior in ways that um, we we don't need to be ostentatious as mm-hmm. long as it's visible, um, because mm-hmm. people do indeed notice these things. I read something in the, I do a C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton devotion or every Correct. night, two separate ones, and one we had in Lewis was recently was about how after we become Christians, in many ways, we still maintain our very selves. I mean, you usually have the same interests that you did before in many cases. You have the same kind of diet. You have the same personality, same habits and such, but it's, it's, how how you live doesn't change radically, but your attitude towards how you live is what should change. Yeah, and that's naturally going to be expressed in, you know, certain changes of behavior. Um, um, certain things you'll have to let go of and certain habits you'll you'll pick up, like, you know, attending Sunday worship and having a time of prayer um, in your life. And I think that one of the things that's important also for us to model um, for people who are either brand new Christians or are thinking about making that step is, you know, sanctification is a process. You know, when we acknowledge Christ's Lordship, when we're baptized, you know, we're brought into the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit begins to work in us. But, you know, it takes a while, most of the time. I mean, there are some people who are transformed overnight, but that's kind of the exception rather than the rule. Right. And I think it can be a bit intimidating for people who are, 
kind of on the outskirts of faith. And I've, I've had some conversations with folks who are, are hesitant for exactly this reason, because they, they think that this step is going to involve, well, all of a sudden, I'm going to have this deep love for God. I'm going to just be transformed, and I don't, I don't kind of see how that's going to happen. And I think it's important to say, well, it, it will happen, but not overnight. Um, you know, it's one of the things I, I, I say in my memoir, Not God's Type, that when I became a Christian, I didn't love God. I mean, that may sound shocking, but I just met him, effectively. <laughs> uh, how do you love someone whom you don't really know at all? Uh, and it was only in, in the process of my growth as a Christian that I got to know our Lord. And, you know, then it was through this process of getting to know him um, that I began to love him. And that has, has deepened and grown, you know, as I have grown as a Christian. But did I feel a great love for our Lord when I was first a Christian? No. Um, would it have been right for me to stay there? No. Um, but I think, again, this is where action matters and where, you know, the term Christian culture is really problematic because oftentimes what Christian culture, quote unquote, means is a certain superficial culture in which people listen to, you know, Christian artists that, you know, that don't have swear words in their, their lyrics and they, you know, attend church um, and they, they maybe go to certain activities. And that can be, it can be superficial. Um, I think the deeper idea of Christian culture is, well, how is it that we're living that we're really modeling and witnessing Christ's action in our life and we're allowing that action to be continuing to work in us and and deepen us and allow us to love our neighbors better. And so, for instance, one of the things that um, has been most helpful for me in the past couple of years in, in deepening my own Christian life has been trying to keep the Sabbath um, and on Sundays, you know, go to Mass, um, but have it a day that I don't do work, um, you know, except in a, you know, an emergency. If I have a student email that's panicking, I'm going to do a charitable thing and answer it. Um, but most student emails can wait until Monday. Um, and, you know, to read, to read for pleasure, to watch some TV for pleasure, um, but also to do more devotional reading um, and to spend more time in, in prayer. And this is kind of countercultural because we live in such a go, go, go society that it's actually a bit difficult to say, no, I'm not going to be productive today in the way that most people think of productive. I'm going to waste time with God. <laughs> uh, and that's the place that, that really allows space for prayer, space for silence, space for fellowship with friends and family without feeling like you're really, okay, we're going to press for time. And that's something that's part, that should be, I think, part of our Christian culture, that we are a people that have time to spend time with our family and that we have time to spend time with our friends and to help others and notice the needs of others and just frankly to rest, you know, and, and enjoy the good things that God has, has given us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a way that we can be different from the culture around us. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd like to everyone know that this is way ahead, but if you look at November 5th, we're going to have on my, the show here, my guest would be John Coaster. He's written a book, The Radical Pursuit of Rest. But we'll also talk some about the Sabbath and such. 
like Dr. Wardway has been talking about. But, you know, Dr. Wardway, it's been great here, but unfortunately the clock is not on our side. And I could have, I could have kept talking for hours and hours more on this topic. It's such a fascinating one, but we do have to cut things short. In case people are, are still wanting more, though, they want to know where they can uh, find you. Do you have a blog, a website, an email way people can get in touch with you? I do. Um, people can go to hollyordway.com, um, and they'll find details about my writing, about my speaking, and also about the MA in apologetics at HBU, where I teach um, fully online. And I would definitely encourage people to uh, to check out that, hollyordway.com. And do you have uh, any final thoughts you'd like to leave for a deeper water's audience? Well, I would just encourage everyone to to continue to just look for ways to live out your faith um, mm-hmm. and to let let it let your own personal culture, as it were, become more and more deeply Christian. Um, and then if you do that, I think you have an even stronger foundation to be looking at how can I bring Christ into the culture around me. Well, Dr. Ordway, it's been wonderful having you here and. I look forward to having you again on sometime. All right. My pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me on. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week you're going to hear me at the Apologetics Academy of Jonathan McLaughlin. The week after that, we got William Webb coming on, talking about his book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>